Hi, I'm Robin Anir, and this is my podcast, Nothing on TV, in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories mostly from the 19th century, a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Newspapers were it, and there was plenty in them to get excited about. Well, for me to get excited about, anyway. Just listen to this. It's an advertisement from the Missing Friends, Messages Etc. column on the front page of the Melbourne Argus on Saturday, June 23rd, 1855. It's headed Poncho Cloak. The gentleman who took a blue cloth overcoat from the exhibition building at the concert on Monday night, leaving in exchange a poncho cloak, is requested to communicate with H, 130 Russell Street. In the coat pocket was a meerschaum pipe marked with the initials of the owner. Leaving in exchange a poncho? What manner of cruel trick was this? If, like me, you were a pre-teen circa 1970, a poncho was a counterculture-inspired garment crocheted by your nana from a pattern in Women's Day. How did a poncho come to be involved in a gentleman's cloakroom mix-up more than 100 years earlier, in 1855? Well, let's say it was a previous spin of the same fashion cycle. In a Sydney newspaper called Bell's Life, back in August 1849, it was announced that a new sort of cloak called the poncho has been introduced into London. It is best described by giving the directions for making one. First, take a blanket. Secondly, cut a hole in the middle and pop your head through. You are then in the fashion. Up till then, few newspaper readers would have heard of a poncho outside of travellers' tales from South America. The gaucho stockman of the Andes wore ponchos made of woven alpaca that hung down as far as the knees, giving free use to the arms, but always furnishing them and the rest of the body shelter, an overcoat by day and a blanket by night. By one account, their ponchos were lined with red, and when a gaucho wishes to draw the attention of the cattle, he waves his poncho, red side out, the sight of which nearly infuriates them. The gaucho's masters, wealthy ranchers of the Cordilleras, wore ponchos made from the fleece of the alpaca's wild relative, the vicuña, as soft as velvet and as durable as steel. With the outbreak of the Californian gold rush in 1848, ponchos migrated north and caught on as a practical fashion among the gold diggers. A year later, London drapers were advertising ponchos as a new kind of slops or workwear, and pretty soon they reached Australia just in time for our gold rushes. They seem pretty quickly to have evolved from the original blanket with the hole cut through. On sale in Melbourne, as winter approached in 1853, was the Australian poncho, or gold digger's friend, got up in the most superior manner, with a waterproof outer and coarse woolen lining. It must have weighed a tonne. On offer in Sydney at the same time were impervious ponchos in black alpaca and Saxony ponchos, the latter sold by merchants who also stocked spotted silk neckties, Grenadian silk cravats and gents' quoiting jackets. Another year on and we had the Parisian poncho, the handsomest garment ever produced, the Venetian poncho, the coloured bearskin poncho, the Rialto poncho and, market diversification, the ladies' poncho. Entertaining snippets from Charles Dickens' weekly journal Household Words were a regular feature of Australian newspapers during the 1850s. In 1854, the Adelaide Times ran one such borrowed paragraph in which the writer deplored 
the verbiage by which coats are transformed into bisniks, alpacas, vicuñas, ponchos, Alexandrians and siphonias. This sounds a lot like George Augustus Sala, one of Dickens' stable of writers and a master of hyperbole. Close listeners to Nothing on TV will recall that Sala made a sidelong appearance in episode two in which he was falsely claimed as a brother by the discoverer of the Marble Man of Kalula. At any rate, the undisputed George Augustus Sala would touch on the same theme, coats, that is, not marble men, in a piece lifted from household words later that year for a colonial run in the Sydney Morning Herald, fulminating, or at least pretending to fulminate, against the disagreeable uniformity of costume prevalent in the present day, Sala worked up a real head of steam. Here he is. Really, what with the moustache movement, the detective police, the cheap clothing establishments, the shirt collar mania, the introduction and wearing by peaceable business, everyday men of the wildest and most incongruously picturesque garments, such as ponchos, togas, vicuñas, siphonias, etc., nobody knows who or what anybody else is. Notice that who or what. Sala was talking here about class and the potential for clothing to misrepresent or muddy class distinctions. Here in the Australian gold colonies in the 1850s, this was especially an issue, growing egalitarianism, or at least the appearance of it. And the ready availability of cheap, fashionable clothing, and of course the money to buy it, contributed to that appearance. Sala wasn't the only commentator to hyperbolise in either semi- or outright jest at the increasing number of abstruse names given to various simple articles of clothing, particularly men's coats. There are payuma coats, pardesus, redingotes, siphonias, ponchos, sompli, togas, aquascutums, and all sorts of distressing articles advertised right, left and around, wrote one of them. A piece in the Melbourne Age headed Queer Advertisements marvelled at the protean changes which gents' overcoats undergo changes more in name than in shape. I have my eyes now on one garment, says the writer, which has assumed at least a dozen aliases within the last three or four years. It entered life modestly as an Albert, afterwards a Newmarket, then a Poncho, afterwards a Talma, then three or four aliases names forgotten, after that a Raglan, then it became a Palesia, then a Palmerston, then took itself a partner in the shape of a cape and became an Inverness. George Augustus Sala, you may recall, included in his litany of regrettable innovations the cheap clothing establishment. Theirs were the advertisements referred to as queer, and many of the names for what was essentially the same coat were invented by them to create the impression of novelty, of something new, the latest, and by speeding up the fashion cycle to sell more coats. In Sydney, during the 50s, Clothing merchants seem to have vied with one another to come up with the most outlandish names for their overgarments. Benjamin Lazarus, the people's clothier, was the best and boldest of them. He started off fairly modestly, listing Zephyrs, Thrashers, Trevelyans, Himalayas and Caracos, the Dreadnought Reefer, the Salamanca Hip Jacket and the Tradston Wrapper. That's wrapper with a W, not a beatbox. But Lazarus upped the ante with such Baroque confections as these. The Moret Caleb Sack Rapatoga, that's Sack spelt S-A-Q-U-E, of course. The Himalaya Poncho Polto, the Cadden Galgate Pea Jacket, the Sack Polto Dromedary and the Plantagenet Caraco Scrip. And ponchos? Did he have ponchos? Here's just some of them. 
the Tabatua poncho, the Camlet poncho, the Tagmont poncho, the waterproof poncho, the reversible poncho, the dromedary poncho, the Tiviot poncho, the mohair poncho, the carousel poncho, and my favourite, the invisible poncho. I'd like to have seen that. His rival, Mr. Marks, the people's tailor, was big on repetition, capitalisation, and exclamation, shouting his wares at newspaper readers. Prices, prices, prices. Trousers, trousers, trousers. Coats, coats, coats. That's 18 exclamation marks, and he'd hardly got started yet. Like Lazarus, Marx's advertisements featured long lists of stock items running half the length in tiny type of the bigger-than-broadsheet pages. But his approach was more enticing. Try our summer Crimea coats, quite new. Try our raglan coats. Try our summer poncho. Try our black luster coats. Try our light gossamer coats. Try our Nepalese wrappers. In the 1850s, with British forces fighting in the Crimean War, it was both patriotic and good business to evoke the name of a military hero or campaign. Lord Raglan, celebrated in the Raglan coat, was the British commander at the Battle of Alma, the first major battle of the war. At the Monster Clothing Hall, monster here meaning big, not scary, Henry Cohen sold a range of coats and ponchos that charted the entire course of the war. Besides the Raglan, he had the Inkerman wrapper, the Omer Pasha winged Talma, and the Cars jacket, commemorating, respectively, the Battle of Inkerman, the Ottoman commander, and the Siege of Kars, that's K-A-R-S, in eastern Anatolia. Just off the ship for winter 1858 were Palmerston, Napier, and Albert overcoats, honouring Prime Minister, Statesman, and Consort. And the same shipment brought Angola Rochefort's and Shaggy Palatos, a kind of loose overcoat, as well as Carazza, Eureka and Cuirass shirts with the new French wristbands. Inspired or else appalled by all this neologistic outerwear, a writer for the London magazine The Month proposed the following innovation. The protean chronon hot ontologous or changeable surtout, the tails of which button under to form a dress coat, can be reefed to make a shooting coat, folded into a new market cutaway or taken away altogether to turn into a sailing jacket. It is black outside and green within with sets of shifting buttons so that it may be used either for dress or sporting, evening or morning, with equal propriety. Contrast all that palaver with the simplicity of a Ballarat Draper's advertisement which offered for sale beautiful ponchos. Thanks to industrialisation, clothes were cheaper than they'd ever been before, so you needn't have struck gold to afford a new coat. A very plain poncho, woven and made in the north of England, could be bought in Sydney for as little as half a crown, say $17 in today's money. A fancy one of mohair or beaver, fitted with lining, might set you back a guinea. That's roughly ten times as much. One firm of Sydney merchants who advertised cheap, quality ponchos were brazen about how such low prices were achieved. Abraham and Son invite the world to call at their mart, their advert began, where all that is fashionable may be had at the smallest possible price. And, as candour is the order of the day, they beg to remark that having brought the sweating system to the greatest possible perfection, and as they ask no questions where they purchase their clothes, they are enabled to undersell any house in the trade. 
The sweating system meant sweatshops and piecework, bad pay and hellish conditions. Also driving down the price of coats sold by the cheap clothing establishments was that they, most of them, the coats I mean, were made not of good quality wool but of shoddy. It was actually called that, a fabric manufactured by pulverising old woolen garments, then reweaving the pulp. Garments made of shoddy were nowhere near as robust as those made of real woolen cloth. The shoddy uniforms worn by soldiers in the American Civil War were liable to disintegrate in the first heavy rain. But a coat made of shoddy was cheap, so who cared if it wore out quicker? The age of fast fashion had begun. Sellers of second-hand clothes prided themselves on the pre-shoddy quality of their stock. One of them told the London journalist Henry Mayhew that If you find a slop thing marked a guinea, I don't care what it is, but I'll undertake that you shall get one that'll wear longer and look better to the very last, second-hand, at less than half the money. Plenty less. It always bangs a slop because it was good to begin with. The word slop or slops had evolved from meaning just workwear to meaning cheap new clothing of any sort. Another old clothes man, 20 years later, would lament that now flash and flimsy is the style and shoddy's all the rage. He went on, It comes of the pride of the working classes, trade unions, strikes and such like. And fashion, sir, fashion. Fashions used to last a lifetime and coats were worn till their owners tired of them. And then they went down the scale respectable to dress the labouring classes. But labourers now ape their masters and buy it first hand. Oh, we live in a flashy age. Nothing solid, nothing substantial. All show and tinsel. Fashion historians describe the fancified metropolitan poncho, the sort that would have cost you a guinea, as a cape-like overcoat with extra-wide pagoda sleeves. I suspect, though, that the more traditional outdoorsman-style poncho was still popular in the back blocks, among stockmen and others who had to travel light and sleep rough. A Launceston newspaper, reporting on a shooting match in 1859, noted the unwelcome presence of a bumpkin from the interior who, they said, possessed more poncho and boots than discrimination and brains. In the 1860s, the bushrangers Ben Hall and Dan Morgan both were described as wearing long ponchos nearly down to their feet, which hid belts studded with revolvers. In fact, according to the Victorian Police Gazette, Morgan had a poncho on his person when he was shot dead in April 1865 together with a pair of German silver spurs, a colonial gold ring, a telescope, a Colt revolver, powder flask and bullets, 92 pounds, 5 shillings and tuppence in notes and coin, and other articles of a trifling nature. Curiously, a couple of weeks later, there came a report of a second Morgan's poncho. It was stated in Wangaratta on Thursday last, said the Ovens and Murray advertiser, that a poncho had been found by some men at a campsite between the quarries and Warby's station supposed to be the property of the late Daniel Morgan. If so, the garment is an historical one in New South Wales. Was it preserved for posterity, I wonder, like Ned Kelly's armour? Certain classes of urban criminal appear to have favoured the poncho for its qualities of roominess and concealment. A Melbourne detective spotted John Murphy, alias Hurley, feeling the pocket of a woman looking in a bookshop window in 1860, and when arrested, the would-be pickpocket was found to have several coats presumed to be stolen hidden under the poncho he was wearing. The previous year, a young man named Cobley, employed by a firm of Collins Street jewellers, had used the cover of his large poncho cape to abscond with the contents of their safe. 
44 gold watches and jewellery to the value of £1,400. That would be roughly $250,000 in today's money. A poncho saved the day, or rather the evening, on one occasion in Beechworth when, during a lecture on electrobiology, a kerosene lamp smashed and the crowded hall caught fire. A rush took place to the door, but the flames were extinguished by a gentleman who heroically sacrificed his poncho and the entertainment proceeded. But the voluminous poncho also had its drawbacks. When William Brown, a bookseller in Lydiard Street, Ballarat, was called to answer a charge of assault in 1858, he confessed that, When he called me a liar, I struck him. Did he regret his actions? Well, kind of. I'm sorry I didn't hurt him, he said, but my poncho was in the way. We began today with a poncho cloak being substituted for an overcoat in a cloakroom mix-up at the exhibition building in Melbourne. You might suppose such mishaps to have been a rare occurrence in the age of the attentive servant, but you'd be wrong. During the 1850s anyway, the cloakroom cock-up seems to have been a fixture at any large public event. In the days following any grand ball or concert, the newspapers would run a flurry of advertisements calling for the return of garments taken in error from the cloakroom. But the fiasco that set the benchmark for cloakroom mismanagement took place on the occasion of the Patriotic Fund Ball held at the self-same exhibition building to raise money for the Crimean War effort. A quick word about the exhibition building. This wasn't the World Heritage listed structure that still stands in the Carlton Gardens in Melbourne. No, this was an earlier effort modelled on London's Crystal Palace. And it was a white elephant from the word go. I mean, an all-glass building in the Antipodes? What were they thinking? Anyway. The Patriotic Fund Ball, July 1855. On the one hand, it was a big success, the most brilliant ball ever given in the colony, said the Argus. And the cloakroom arrangements, they were also a landmark of utter disorder. Again, the Argus. Such a scene of confusion, we believe, never occurred as a sequel to any similar entertainment. In the ladies' cloakroom, we understand that much less disorder occurred. No surprises there. But the gentleman was fortunate indeed who secured either his own coat or hat. Of the 1,500 who attended the ball, more than half were men. Everywhere yesterday, the Argus went on, people were to be met who, by the novel fit of their chapeau, showed that they had been at the ball and that they suffered from the chaos of the cloakroom. The organising committee sent a statement to the newspapers explaining just what had gone wrong. Here's their explanation. Four servants were entrusted with the duty of receiving, ticketing and re-delivering all articles committed to their charge. These duties they satisfactorily performed until about two in the morning, when, several gentlemen entering at the same time and totally disregarding our arrangements, proceeded to look for their own property and threw the whole into the state of chaos so aptly described in your article. The servants, seeing that all endeavour to restore order would be fruitless, retired. An explanation that the Argus considered scarcely satisfactory. The persons appointed to such a charge should have stuck to their posts to the last and not have visited the misdeeds of one or two upon the entire body of the guests. Here's just a selection of the adverts appearing in the Lost or Found column of the Argus in the days following the Patriotic Fund Ball. I have lost my poncho cape, quite new. Brown horn buttons, Charles Poole, Theatre Royal. And this one, the gentleman who, by mistake, took a black cloth poncho with velvet collar is requested to leave the same with Mr. Scratton, solicitor, 30 Swanston Street. 
also sought were a black bearskin poncho, a little torn under the small ticket pocket, a top coat, brown colour, with a silk handkerchief with red border and some cigars in the pockets, a blue beaver poncho with a letter in the small pocket on the right side, a blue cloth overcoat, velvet collar and cuffs, the pockets containing a blue silk purse with a sum of money, a yellow silk handkerchief, cloth cap and pair of gloves, a black cloth greatcoat, the pocket containing a cigar case with a silver-mounted meerschaum pipe and tobacco, number of ticket 586, a large reversible sack coat, grey on one side, brown the other, broad worsted braiding on edge. Also, an oilskin cap and a pair of lavender-coloured gloves in the pocket, ticket 297, and a dark blue cloth poncho having a pair of India rubber galoshes, kid gloves and a white wide-awake hat in the lower pockets and a cambric handkerchief marked with the owner's name in the breast pocket. Only one advertisement put into words the pathos inherent in all the rest. The person who, by mistake, took away on Thursday evening an overcoat marked JB inside in white under the collar is earnestly entreated to restore the same to its disconsolate owner. That same tone was captured perfectly by the wags at the Melbourne Punch in their lampoon of the lost and found. Poncho, why did you desert me after the ball was over? Your warm embrace as we went thither led me to hope greater constancy. Return and all shall be forgiven. We hear quite a different tone in a series of advertisements placed in the Argus by the doubly uncoated Mr T. King of Collingwood. Over the course of a week or so, his ads grew increasingly belligerent. 17th of July. Lost. Black bearskin overcoat, rifle cap, dress coat and sundries. 18th of July. Where's my coat? Bearskin overcoat, dress coat, cigars and sundries. 24th of July. Stolen. A black bearskin overcoat, dress coat, etc. belonging to T. King, Oxford Street, Collingwood. We get a hint of what may have been the real cause of the cloakroom disorder at the Patriotic Fund Ball in a report a month later of the French Ball held at the same venue. There was a great improvement in respect to the custody of coats, hats, etc., there being a well-organised staff of attendants and anything like a rush being provided against by the depository being partitioned off in a substantial manner. The reporter went on to express approval that the drinking of spirits had been banned at the French Ball. It prevented the occurrence of scenes which should never take place anywhere or under any circumstances, but which, at a ball, should be specially provided against. The utmost order prevailed throughout. The closest Sydney came to the cloakroom chaos of the patriotic fund ball seems to have been in connection with a grand Masonic ball held at the Prince of Wales Theatre the following year, that's June 1856. The organising committee did their bit to set things right, asking through the newspapers that those who have taken better coats, etc. than their own will communicate with us and the difference will be adjusted. That not everybody obliged this request is evident from the outpouring of disconsolateness in the lost or found columns, this time in the Sydney press. Lost at the Masonic Ball on Tuesday evening by a gentleman. A superfine black cloth overcoat in the pockets of which were a pair of brown kid gloves, a white pocket handkerchief marked charade, a latchkey. The coat is lined with woolen plaid. Others were seeking a dark top coat poncho with a pair of dark kid gloves and an address card in one of the pockets. A blue boating coat with tartan lining, ticketed number 27. A top coat with a past master's apron in the pocket. 
a brown cloth poncho overcoat with velvet collar, and a black pilot cloth poncho with a cap and cigar case in the pockets, that last one belonging to the large-girthed Inspector James Black of the Sydney Police. Now, remember the classified advert, just five lines long, that I read at the head of this episode? It began like this. Poncho Cloak, the gentleman who took a blue cloth overcoat from the exhibition building at a concert on Monday night. What on earth, you might ask, was that ad doing on page one of the Argus? Wasn't page one reserved for blaring headlines and breaking news? No, that's where classified advertisements lived. 268 of them on that front page in question, tight-packed in print so small it hurts your eyes to read them. They also typically filled the entirety of pages two and three, as well as most of page seven and the whole of page eight, the back page of the paper. Because, of course, that's how newspapers made their money. And it's also how people communicated and broadcast in an age long before the internet. Besides columns for missing friends, messages, etc. on the front page of the Argus that day, there were shipping notices, listings for board and lodging, houses to let, domestic servants and tradesmen wanted. Particularly eye-catching ads in that last category included Wanted, a little girl to mind a baby. Wanted, a nice, tidy girl to look after four children. Wanted, a young man to make himself useful. And my favourite, Wanted, a man to clean tripe. The missing friends, messages, etc. category fell largely out of use once the heat had gone out of the gold rush. People had found it hard to keep track of their mates and families during the hither and thither of the chase for gold. It wasn't called a gold rush for nothing. Lost or found soon took its place. And that's usually where you'd spot the fallout of a cloakroom, cock-up and other tales of misfortune like these from the front page of the Melbourne Age one day in the winter of 1880. Lost at Victoria Market, a purse containing a pound note, a half sovereign, five shillings, small silver and copper, a jam recipe, a baker's bill. Lost, Saturday afternoon, by a poor woman, between Flinders Street and West Melbourne, 23 one-pound notes and seven sovereigns tied in a pocket handkerchief. Lost in St Kilda, or train from Elizabeth Street, a long black earring in colonial gold. Lost, a lady's spectacles and case, between four and five o'clock in the picture or statue gallery in the public library. Lost, a wagonette cushion in Melbourne, colour, magenta, worn. In each case, a reward was offered. Perhaps we'll explore other curiosities from the Lost or Found column in future episodes of Nothing on TV. But for now, that's it from me. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in sunny Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. Nothing on TV is produced by Mrs Bradley, my long-time literary agent and muse. And just a word about production values. You'll have noticed by now that there's a number of things my podcast lacks much in the way of polish for one thing, also music, a co-host, guests or sound effects except for this one. The sweet, sweet sound of a sherry cork. Nothing on TV won't be a podcast for everyone, but that's okay. If you broadly like what you hear, stick with us. We're sure to get better with practice. You can find more episodes of Nothing on TV at iTunes. Why not subscribe while you're there and have fresh episodes of the podcast appear like magic in your podcast feed? Visit my website, robinanear.com slash nothingontv, or just Google Nothing on TV, 
for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There you can also send me an email and you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into the marvels of Trove, just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. See you next time.